Welcome to Funds and Founders. This weekly show is tailored for Austin founders navigating the early stages of their entrepreneurial journey. I'm your host and fellow Austinite, Abhinav Sinha. If you're looking for the motivation and the insight needed to build a successful company, you're in the right place. I have with me Justin. Justin's CEO of a startup called Fantasy Elect. Justin, why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, I, I love that you left my left last name off. And once I say it, people are going to be like, oh, that was why? Justin Schoenfelder. Yeah. So like you said, founder and CEO of Fantasy Elect, uh, we're bringing the fantasy sports experience to politics. So we give people the ability to draft teams of politicians, play during an election, earn points, and we do real money games. So you can actually win money on, a, on an election. So, nice. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to highlight sort of your journey up until this point, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me about when did your entrepreneurship journey start? I mean, I think I had like a really long front tail. I was always driven towards entrepreneurship. I, I always had these kind of, uh, I never really wanted to work for someone else. My grandparents on both sides of my family have are self-employed and have their own businesses. And I think based on that, you know, I would spend the summers working for my grandfather's plumbing company. When I went to San Francisco and saw my grandmother, I'd go with her to her store. I always liked the idea of it being yours, but I didn't really do that for a long time. I had maybe a romanticized view of it. It's what I wanted to do, but I didn't do that. I really tried a lot of different things and many different industries. So started off thinking that I wanted to be in the military, wanted to be a pilot, and then changed that to wanting to be a, an actor, realized that maybe I didn't want to be a pilot, I wanted to be Maverick from Top Gun. And it just kind of kept building these things that I was trying different industries and doing different things. So it really wasn't until this Fantasy Elect was the first thing that I started on my own and kind of jumped all in with. I could give the whole bio of all the different jobs and maybe one by one we'll hit each one, but that's really what it was. I think it was a really long leading tale of knowing I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I think being an actor, being a writer, being those things are entrepreneurial tasks or, or goals, but they're maybe not what we think of as being an entrepreneur uh, because you are your own business in that. So that's what I would say is this is the first thing that I've actually done executed on. But before that, I had a lot of ideas and always wanted to be that entrepreneur. What prevented you from taking on any of those ideas? So you mentioned actor, you mentioned a bunch of things. Why fantasy elect versus the hundreds of ideas you got before? Again, I if we think about the writing and the acting as an entrepreneur, I did try that. I did do that. And for about a decade in LA, I, I was writing, I wrote a comic book, I wrote many scripts, created many different ideas, never gained traction and learned a lot about why I didn't gain traction that now I really focus on those lessons because I think I really learned from what caused that. I would say that I did do that. This may be a very different thing in that it's so clear to me the vision of what steps to take that it was very easy for me to say, okay, this is the thing that I'm solely focused on right now. Whereas in my 
late 20s, early 30s to date myself in LA, I wasn't clear on what I was doing. So I would just sit in my room and write and didn't really know what to do with the business side of it was really what was lacking the most there. So So you could say you had the idea, but you didn't have the conviction to follow through or you didn't have the just mission driven, hey, I know I want to do this and here's my path. So was it the uncertainty that prevented you from going all in into writing or producing or being an actor? Yeah, I mean, I was I was pretty all in. I, you know, you know me, you, you know that I can be very philosophical about it. And I actually think that though every part of the journey was required for me to take pieces of lessons to apply to now. So I think one of the big lessons, since we're being specific, I don't know if it was about all in, but for the writing and for the acting, I neglected the networking, the building the business, the the being part of a community. I had a f- several friends that worked in the industry and we did like a sketch writing group, but I did not go and try to network with agents, managers, producers, which for Fantasy Elect has been very opposite. And a lot of really great things have come from just meeting people who... I tell people one of the biggest things I've learned in Fantasy Elect is how many people in the world are willing to help you for free and want nothing in return. And that really just fills me with a sense of gratitude and realizing that I missed that 20 years ago, really more like 15 years ago. So I think I had to see that missing piece and then now not want to make the same mistake. And then that's led to successes. And then each one along the way, not just the writing, but I see now the mistakes that I made and the things that I did wrong. So I I correct for those now. So I think the clarity of vision and as you taught, like the, as you said, the conviction, I, I think it's perceived by other people when they talk to me as conviction, but really it is clarity of vision of like, I made so many mistakes that led to failures or, or not achieving what I wanted to achieve in all of those different areas that now I can almost see the path that I'm traveling as if it's already happened. And I tell people, I've already seen the end result. I know where I've seen the mountaintop, right? So I think that's the bigger part of it. How many journeys would you say you had between acting and starting Fantasy Elect? Oh man, like five careers in my life. Always different industries? Always different industries. Real estate development. I sold, uh, I worked at a place we, we had a production arm, but we also did film sales for independent films between five and $50 million. And we would get them financed as well. So there was like learning about tax arbitrage in making a movie. Sold real estate about six years before I even went into real estate development. They were two totally different things. One was just a sales agent, like if you wanted to buy a home. The other one was for developers that were we were buying and selling and constructing buildings, bartending for a long time. I was a stage manager for an opera company in New York. I mean, I, I did a lot. And one of the things I said recently is that that's one thing that I like about myself is the ability to constantly reinvent myself and start completely over at zero. Perceptively, people might perceive it as starting over at zero, but you never, you don't suddenly become stupid to all the lessons that you've learned when you start over, right? So you're actually building this repertoire of things 
that you don't realize how you're going to use it later on. And even now with the company, I use lessons from entertainment industry that have actually nothing to do with it. It's not like writing copy. It's actually a business lesson that I use. So, What do you think made you jump from industry to industry? Because what it feels like to me is these are all completely independent verticals. Mm. How do you go from one to the other? How do you go from actor to real estate to bartender to stage manager? Like what, what was the catalyst for that? If I'm being honest, a lot of it is that for me, it's about the quality of life that I wanted to live, the type of life that I wanted to live or I want to live. It's not over yet, uh, hopefully. So the, so the truth is, is that I think money is an amazing outcome, but it's a horrible reason. So my reason for doing things has never been, this is where I'm going to make the most money. It's going to be, this is something interesting to learn. This is something that I'm interested in. Real estate development, I've always been interested in, in real estate and its value. I love architecture. So to work for a developer who was a former architect and saw things in the same way and dealing with some of the portfolio was historic building. Some of it was new development in LA, historic, a hundred years old. That really, it was something that I, I enjoyed and I wanted to learn more. And honestly, I left each industry generally when I felt like there was not a lot more to learn, I would just be staying for a paycheck. And that was something that I was, that was like a deal I was unwilling to make with myself. Like you want money, but you're not going to grow anymore here. Bartending was a little bit more of a social itch. It was more of like, that person's cool that, you know, you get to be the center of attention and a little bit of the movie cocktail with Tom Cruise, maybe playing in my mind. So I think that's a lot of what it was. And I, and on the film side, storytelling and movies, I'm very driven by that. So yeah, it was always just interest, I think. I want to say I know that movie, but I don't know. Cocktail? I have no idea. You got to watch it. It's such a good movie. It was before, it was back when Tom Cruise made movies other than Mission Impossible. Like it was when he actually made different movies. What? I hope he doesn't hit, like he could totally crush my career. He could crush my life with as powerful as he is. I hope he... I hope he hears this for your sake, but for me, I hope he doesn't hear this. When did you first get the idea for Fantasy Light? In 2015, uh, I was in LA. I was writing and doing real estate development at the same time. I was in this fantasy football league. That was when Donald Trump entered the election. And I just kind of was struck at how much politics started to feel like being at a football game. I had been to football games. The rallies, uh, all of these, all of the energy suddenly was like somebody unscrewed a cap and just energy was flowing out into politics. And I literally turned to somebody that was in the league with me and I said, this is the game we should be playing. Back to how I can become very philosophical, that was like a lightning bolt. I felt like once those words came out of my mouth, I was hit with something. And I thought, man, this really could be almost the same game, really. What were you doing at the time? Yeah, it was so real estate development and also writing. And the league was actually, sorry? That was in LA. In LA. And the league was actually a league of assistants in in Hollywood. So it was like this private group of people that were assistants to agents or managers or. So yeah, at that moment, but I wasn't in tech, had never been in tech, knew nothing about tech and wanted to make it. So I talked to a guy in one of the buildings that was in our portfolio. There was a, 
a guy who was doing a tech company. He was building a tech company. And I said to him, this is my idea. I put together a pitch deck. I emailed it to him. We talked about it. And he said, this is a great idea. I'm building this other thing, but you should go do it. And I was a little bit like, I don't know tech. How am I going to go do it? Right. I need somebody to, to build this with me. And if I'm being honest, I think at that time, and I think this is true for so many people, there's this belief that your ideas are worth value and you can just sell an idea or you can get somebody else to build it for you and you get to keep a big chunk because it was your idea and that's the important part. So I it was like a little disillusioned maybe. I was like, ah, maybe it's just not going to get built. And I changed companies, started doing real estate development for another developer. And then a year later, I moved to Asia for four years. And when I came back to the States... I had some family that moved to Austin, so I came to Austin and didn't think I would stay in Austin, actually. I was thinking about staying here for a while, going to Istanbul maybe to move, but I wanted to go to this event at the Capital Factory, which is um, like a VC, they, they call themselves like the center of gravity here in Austin for startup space, and you were expected to pitch at that event, so I was just thinking like, what am I going to pitch? And in the intervening years, I had taught myself some no-code, low-code, throw a shout out to Bubble, and uh, had built some things on Bubble. And Bubble's so I, not a sponsor. We'll use this and you can go get them say, hey, you should uh, you know, support this show. Anyway, I had ideas and I thought, oh, I'll pitch those ideas, things that I had been building, things I was interested in. But I kept going back to this idea, like, no, there's something about this idea that it was just in my brain. I couldn't get rid of it. So I pitched this on a whim. Like I didn't pre prepare either. I just pitched it. And uh, right away, the tenor of the room changed. And people always respond pretty much the same way with like a large chuckle and like, a, oh, yeah, that would. Why has anybody done that? And since that moment, founders and investors have just helped. They've just, I've, I tell people, I feel like I'm just basically following the breadcrumbs where they're leading because people will introduce me or they'll do something. So that's a really long winded way of saying I first had the idea in 2015, but really it was only in, in 2022 that I pitched it and started doing so. So in 2016, it. when you pitched it, what was the sentiment then? Like, what did you think about it? Why, like you said, ideas are dime a dozen. I personally believe in sweat equity versus idea equity, right? So what happened then? Why? How did you end up in Vietnam? Yeah. How I, do you go from pitching the idea to going to Vietnam? I mean, truthfully, so I pitched the idea when I was working for one developer. I went to another developer and worked for a year. Was given a promotion that I felt like I had already seen the end of my development career. My like, I I, I didn't like see no a path forward. I didn't see a path forward. With that company specifically, but also in real estate development, I, I learned a lot over the last decade doing that. So I, I was ready to for something else. And I was driving one night and I thought, you know, I've never traveled and I always wanted to travel. And the, as soon as the word travel popped in my mind, the word Vietnam popped in my mind. So I actually thought that I would just go travel like I, was it a one-way ticket sort of deal? or No, it was a two-way ticket. I thought I was going to spend a month in Vietnam, about a half month in Japan, and a half month in Korea because my si little sister moved to Korea. And I had a return ticket. And once I left Vietnam after a month, enjoyed Japan. And when I was at my sister's house in Korea, I said, I'm going to, I want to stay. 
So I called the airline, figured out what I would do with my ticket. I met some people in Vietnam, some expats, and I just messaged them on WhatsApp and said, hey, does any, do you know anybody that needs a roommate? Does anybody need a roommate? And just went back. I just flew back to Vietnam and it turned into a four-year life, really. And, and we didn't, I didn't mention that, but there I used English as a way in to start coaching foreign executives on U.S., you know. Uh, Mannerisms. Yeah, well, U.S. business culture, right? Because what I noticed and even having relationships with some Vietnamese who worked for U.S. multinationals, it's okay if you're there because that U.S. multinational is probably run by locals for the most part. But when you want to transition in some way to working with Americans, the culture of the office is just different because we're a different culture. So there was a need for that niche and just did that for like the next four years. In these four years, did you ever think about the idea or was it just in your own world? Yeah. Nothing to do with that. No, I never thought about it once. And I, you know, I followed American politics from a different country, from from Vietnam, I would watch like YouTube news and stuff like that. And the game never popped in my mind. I was just watching it from afar, which was a very interesting experience to watch your home country's domestic politics as a foreign person in a different country. Because you're removed from it, but it's still kind of part of you because you are you are an American, right? So that was a very interesting experience. But the game never came back in my mind until 2022, when that moment of pitching, actually. Small sidebar, what's one or two things you learned from living in Vietnam for four years? Like your highlight or yeah. something you take away or something you still use? I think from like a 30,000 foot view, I would say the big lesson is that people who travel expand the breadth of their experiences. And people who stay in one place expand the depth of their experiences. And I think the balance of those two things can really lead to a deeper understanding and experience of life. So traveling for me every day was a lesson of there's some sort of discomfort because there's cultural comforts and then becoming comfortable in those discomforts and then suddenly being like, oh, I'm a little bit like that now. Examples like taking your shoes off of the door, right? It's something that growing up as an American, I didn't really do. Now I do, even though I've been back for two years from Asia. It's, it's a habit. It's just something part of, of who I am. The more specific lesson I think uh, that I would say is I was in Vietnam just visiting, actually. It was, it was when I hadn't decided to move there yet during what they call reunification day and we call the fall of saigon and it marks the day that the country was unified when our ally in the south was finally defeated by the northern forces and it struck me the fireworks and the celebration and how happy everyone was to have a unified country that they were celebrating what for my country was a defeat and it was a it was a re it's something I go back to often to always try to look at the inverse of a situation, another perspective. And that was a lesson I think I'll uh, take with me for the rest of my life without judgment either way. Right. I, I told somebody once it would be like being a British person 
20 years later in the US and they're celebrating the 4th of July. It was a very interesting experience. But one that I think, you know, celebrating with those people as well, I, the, 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 the Vietnamese people, I had so many deep relationships there. I understood their joy of like having a unified Vietnam. They love Vietnam and for good reason. Nice. So you come back to Austin after Vietnam. What transpires after? Are you looking for a job? I know we've talked about acquiring a small business. Where, where was your mindset and how did you end up back into entrepreneurship? Was it the pitch that was the catalyst or? No, I mean, in truth, I, I came back specifically for that reason, I think. So okay. during COVID, because I was in Vietnam during COVID, I, I stayed there. I had like residency and uh, work permit, uh, work visa. And immigration is a whole different topic. Yeah. And it was actually, immigration was easier for me, I think, because they made a lot of emergency exceptions because of COVID, right? But during COVID, I, again, back to like, I always wanted this entrepreneurial idea. I had a Vietnamese partner and we were looking at shipping like a PPE to the US, yeah. exporting, importing. And I feel like as an American, I have a pretty good bullshit detector. And for me, it was just the wild, wild west. And it's a huge risk importing, exporting especially something that is governed by the government. So there are things you can import yeah. that are really simple, but something that's governed by the FDA, it's just a huge risk. You sh you have to know who you're getting it from. And again, there were suddenly all these like knockoff rubber gloves or latex gloves or masks or whatever. And you could spend a half million dollars. It could land at the port in LA get inspected and not be allowed entry, what are you going to do with that shipment? If it stays, every day it stays is a storage fee. You can't ship it back. I mean, you could, but where's it going to go when it gets back? What are you going to do with it? It's just a black hole. So the risk and again, culture came up here. I didn't understand the legal system there. I don't understand the culture or the business. I had no trust in it. And it was a catalyst for me to realize you want to do things that and to do them, you can't do them here. Or at least doing them here is going to take a lifetime of understanding the culture and the business here, the same way it took a lifetime for me to get to where I am now as an American here to do business. So I came back to the States and it was a bit of a valley of despair. Like I didn't want to just get a job. I thought that would be a huge distraction. It's funny to speak about a job that way, but I, I felt like it would be a distraction for my, what I knew my real goal was, which was make an investment in myself, make an investment in a business and work really hard at that rather than for someone else. And I tried a lot of things over the course of about eight months. I mean, comically, a lot of things actually. So my parents had a property by uh, like a, na a state national park area here in Texas. Airbnb. Actually, no, not even that. That would have been smarter. We, part of it was, used to be in a uh, commercial space okay. and we had the idea of doing like, kind of like a camping store with like charcoal and firewood and beer and you know what I mean? And it was like in a community, it wasn't a place where you would imagine a store. It used to be a community store next to a house, but anyway, so we did that and, and my dad and I invested money and we stocked it and 
gotten a cigarette license. We had gotten, we were in the middle of lottery and alcohol and all these things. And the property owners association sent us a cease and desist. Like you can't have this store here anymore. We out, we, we, after the change of ownership with my, from the previous person, my dad, there had been a board ruling that you can't have commercial property anymore. So like this huge investment immediately down the drain. And then some people in the POA were raising like chickens and stuff as a business. And I had, I think I had the idea because in Vietnam, I got used to eating quail eggs. I said, ah, we could probably sell quail eggs. We should, we should go into the quail business. So bought some quail, bought a like, um, incubator, raised quail, built this pen and tragically i hope PETA doesn't like search me out for this but like every single one of them died we did a really good job actually we had multiple generations born but it ended up being a very hot summer and everyone was losing birds and we have to this day don't even know why we lost every single one of them so there were there were a lot of failed things happening while i was i was just grasping at straws what kept you going so all these businesses are not working out. Yeah. Um, I know you don't like the word failure, no. but what kept you going to the next one? What What was the drive? What was the inkling underneath? Well, I think the I think after the quail event, I I there was a moment, and I was on a walk with my sister who lives here in Austin, my other sister, and I said, I'm going to stop pushing. I've been trying all these. I've been playing whack a mole with these different ideas. And I realized that the right thing would bubble to the top. What kept me going was just, I didn't want to get a job. So I was like, well, maybe this will work. Maybe that will so you work. You wanted to be your own boss. Yeah. I, I wanted to do something that felt like it was mine. I, I, the last time I had a real job, I remember, I remember the president of the company. It was like basically a family office who had huge equity partners. And then they, there was also like a family portfolio of real estate and an equity portfolio of real estate. And the equity partners were huge, like Korean Air, you know, like huge partners. And I remember the president of the company who was the son of like the, the guy who had started this fortune. And they had purchased buildings in New York in like the 50s and 60s. So like imagine where that is now, right? He was the president of the company, and then he brought his kid in who was like 12. And I said to- Literally or metaphor? No, no, no. The kid was 12. Oh, okay. 13 maybe. Like he was a young kid. And he brought his son into the office. And I said to a coworker, I said, if we stay here long enough, we're going to be working for him. And that was something that immediately, it was true. And I didn't like that idea. I didn't want to work to, to make somebody else's dreams a reality. The part about that, though, that I neglected was that you have to know what your dreams are to make them a reality. Yeah. And they may or may not stay constant. And they don't have to stay constant. Elon Musk is somebody who has, doesn't have constant dreams, right? He's, he likes different things. That was what kept me going was that I, I did not want to work for that 13-year-old again. I didn't want to make somebody else's dreams a reality. I wanted to make my own. And I knew that I had faith that if I just stuck with it, something would reveal itself. And that was actually when things really started to change was when I took my foot off the gas, stopped pushing ahead and kind of, that was when I started doing like an event here, an event here. And then that's what led to me going to an event where you were expected to pitch. And then I, suddenly I was thinking about like, what am I going to pitch? And I just wrote down every idea I ever had 
that's when it came back up to the top. Got it. Now you can see why I'm so philosophical. When you did the pitch, did you see a path forward or was it just, I like this idea, let me go figure it out? Because you said you now have seen the vision, like you know what the hill looks like and you're climbing the hill. Yeah. Did you know that when you were pitching or was it something that's developed over the last couple of years? The direct answer to your question was I didn't know when I was pitching the, the path. A more nuanced answer to that is what I did know was this was the right thing to pitch. I tried to pitch other things. I sent friends of mine a survey with all of my ideas, friends and family. Nobody chose Fantasy Elect. Nobody chose that one. It was like second or third choice for some people, but it w nobody chose it as first choice. So I was actually sitting down trying to create a pitch for this other one that I had been working on and people and everyone thought, oh, you should do that one. And as I was writing, I was like, no, that's not the, that's not the one. This is the one. And even when I pitched it, I knew what the pitch was. I knew what it was. So in a way, I knew what it was, what it would, could become, but not to the degree that I see now because it isn't going to become what I thought it was then. So I guess that's the way I would say it is that I, I knew that was the pitch. I knew that was the thing that needed to come out. I just didn't know the full vision of it. So for someone who's not a political tech founder, has been in various industries, you did the pitch, you're like, okay, I want to go ahead with this. What were next steps? How did you figure that out? Yeah. it seems like a completely brand new space. You don't know how to build a tech platform. Right. In some ways, I actually had this conversation recently. I actually think not being a tech founder is a benefit, which is kind of contrary to what is expected from like YC or A16Z. They're more likely to invest in a, like if you're a solo founder, but a tech person, they're more likely to invest in you. I think there are some very big inherent weaknesses. I think that's true if what you're investing in is a product but if what you're trying to build and what you're investing in is a company, I think it's a big mistake as a generalization. Because since I wasn't a tech founder and all of the founders that I know that don't have a tech background do pretty much do the same thing. It was immediately about how do I prove out the business? I'm not going to go build this right away. How do I prove out the business? So the first thing that I did was... A, start to look for people who already knew things in the industry. So from LA, I, I had relationships with founders, former founders from game industry, kind of like deep tech. And I just called them and said, hey, I had this idea. This is what I'm doing. I'd love to talk to you about it. And immediately to what I said earlier, right away, lots of help. And in talking with one of them, we decided it might have been his idea, but it, I expanded on it. It was like, let's test, will anybody play this thing? This was 2021. This is 2022, last 20, year. Okay. Yeah. So the midterms were happening. This was in September. So I just created the game on Google Sheets. Like, how would it work if it was just a spreadsheet? Yeah. And then I didn't really have a huge, like, close friend network in Austin because I had been in Asia for four years. I had never been to Texas before my life or lived in Texas in my life. So 
I just started reaching out to people that I had met at different events and said, I'm looking for people to play this game and pay $10. Do you know anyone? Because preferably I wanted people that didn't even know me that would tell me, hey, this sucks. Like it's horrible, whatever. So we did. We ended up getting like 30 people to play. Each one threw in 10 bucks. We did different cohorts of games so we could I could test different mechanics and ran the game for basically from October to November. But then the game was extended to December because of the runoff in Georgia between Warnock and Walker. So all of this learning about what people liked and didn't like, they were constantly being surveyed. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Give us your feedback. Interviewed, like in-person interviews. And most importantly, and I think if anybody wants to like validate their business idea, figure out a way to do a question like this. It was at the end of the game and everything, I offered to give each one of them either their money back or credit on the game when it, we, when it became a, a digital platform. And all but one person said that they would take the credit, which meant to them it had at least a $10 value, Yeah. right? So if, if you get a million people at a $10 value, you can kind of do the math, right? Yeah. So that was the first thing. And, and since then, that same methodology goes forward. There's no point in building anything until you validate it in some way. Yeah. So that's we what only I was went through one validation phase. That, that that was the initial validation phase, right? And then the next was kind of where we are most recently. We we launched a web app digital version. Let's see how the game mechanics worked. There. And interestingly. That validation was during this off-year election cycle, so just state elections, and we learned a ton about our mechanics as they relate to either federal or state. So this is something that was unexpected. We didn't realize how the mechanics would shift and how varied Louisiana has such a different election style than New Jersey, than Virginia. And they're all going at the same time. And we have games that are incorporating all of them. You're drafting across all those states. So it's a huge learning process, which is why you validate. If we had just gone and built it, now we'd have to go back and recode the whole thing. Since it's on a web app, now as we're getting ready to release our, our mobile app, we can incorporate all that into that development. So Excellent. that is the thing I would say is that if you... If you've ever seen the movie Sniper with Mark Wahlberg, aim small, miss small, yeah. validate small, small corrections. Sometimes you might want to take a big swing at something, but that is a very calculated risk, I think. So taking a quick detour. So being the CEO of a political tech company, just having talked to you, I've understood it's a very regulated space. Yeah. Were there challenges in understanding and figuring that out? So you did validation 2022, November. You can't go build right away in Jan, right? So what were some of the hurdles yeah. in that process to get to this beta that you have live now? Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it's funny. I, I even said to someone that I, knowing what I know now, I do tend to choose the hardest version of things because building in a regulated space as a first time founder, you're like, you already have so many hurdles, but now you're adding this other aspect to it. It makes it fun. And I've learned a ton to your point. I mean, one of the big helps was just people. So 
one of the first people I reached out to is a former uh, founder and CEO of a game studio for like 19 years in LA. They were building games for many different things, Star Trek game, all of these different things. And he introduced me to a founder of a fantasy football company, a fantasy sports company. And that person through calls and, 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 and emails was just a huge resource as well. One of the biggest things, though, was he encouraged me to go to the Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association conference in February in Vegas last, this year. And while there, I met people from payments processing, people from legal, people from like ID verification companies, all of these things that I didn't even realize I would need. I started meeting them and realizing like each one of them is a kind of expanding what you need to know in order to build this company. So from there, after that conference, I, I basically just tore into like what would be required and right away also realized that we needed a regulatory lawyer, someone who knew the regulatory space. So you have to get what's called a legal letter of opinion, which is basically a lawyer says, I've looked at your your intended game mechanics. I've looked at your business model. It's my legal opinion that you are operating within the law. Once you get this letter of opinion, you take it to all of these other providers and you start to build this stack. You're building a tech stack over here and you're building a regulatory stack over here. And the regulatory stack starts with that legal letter of opinion. You get third-party providers that are going to check like KYC and know your customer because we're doing financial transactions, anti-money laundering. Also, because it's regulated by location, you have to know the geolocation of the player. You get that, then you go get a payments processor. There's bank underwriting. Once that even gets approved, it then has to go to MasterCard and Visa for approval. And these are some of the most conservative companies in the world. Financial services companies are the most conservative companies in the world, and maybe none more so than MasterCard and Visa. So now we've gotten to the point that MasterCard and Visa were approved. We can take transactions. It's also, I like to add that you pay a fee, an annual fee to Visa and MasterCard for being in a high risk category. So we've already paid our fee. We're paid up. We're good. Yeah, we're completely operating within the regulatory environment. So how does one go about learning everything you just did? There's no cheat sheet available. As far as I'm aware, when a founder starts a company, starts an idea, especially in a regulated space, there's no one-stop shop like, hey, go check all these boxes. So was that a process that you discovered as you got there or was there someone that helped or how did you go about that? It's a hundred percent. What you do is you like, you think, okay, I need a payments processor. I'm going to use Stripe. And then you go to Stripe and you think, oh, we're going to do this API. It's going to be fine. And then you find out they won't process your transactions and you say, why? Because you're gambling, you're fantasy sports. We're not gambling legally. We're not. We, we don't do it. We don't do that high risk category. Well, then who do I go to? And then for me, it just started with saying, okay, emailing this person that I met at FSGA, who do you know that I can use for payments processing? Then you go talk to that payments processor and you're like, hey, I need a payments processor. They say, great. You need a legal letter of opinion. Oh, where do I get one of those? Right? So you... Are, Do you ever feel like there was no end to that chain? A hundred percent, without a doubt. And and honestly, I also think though, to be completely realistic and to get rid of anybody's illusions as a founder, 
that is also true with tech stack and with everything else. You're going to have something that goes wrong. How do we solve that? I don't know. Ask that person. Hey, how did you solve that problem? We did it this way, right? So never discount that it is never over. You're constantly building. You're constantly dealing with things that come up. So from the regulated side, 100%. I mean, even now we we are pursuing a partnership with a bank for some very specific account, like our own operating accounts and things that we want to do. And talking to them and having meetings with them, they love the fact that I've already gone through all of this. In the initial meeting, they were like, hey, you're going to need these things, these things. And I said, we have them all. We've already been approved by Visa MasterCard. I'll send you the email tomorrow with all of those things. And they were shocked because they actually are the banking partner of one of the top two fantasy sports and sports book companies. They're used to that, but they're also used to startups and startups never have what one of the big boys have. But we've already made so many adjustments that we were able to just send a a bulk email with all of the attachments of everything that was legally required. But do I know there's more to come? Yeah, for sure. As a CEO, how do you handle these hurdles? So Hmm. is it you reach out to help? Are there resources you use? Are there books you read? What has been the best sort of guiding help or guiding principle every time you reach like, you don't know regulation. Okay, let me go figure out. You don't know tech. Okay, let me go find a CTO or understand more. There's all these things you're unaware about as a founder in a space you don't know very well. How do you go about tackling those challenges? How do you go about solving your problems? And what's been your go-to method, I would say? Yeah, I think from a, again, philosophical perspective, I would say that understanding your mindset and your mentality as a person will strengthen your ability as a CEO, first of all, and as a founder. Those two things are not always combined, right? You can be one or the other, but if you're going to be a founder and CEO of a company, you really, I I think you want to consistently strengthen your mindset to the point of, are you constantly learning? And then, so how do you implement the, the other things I'm going to say? Relationships. Again, I mean, Steve Jobs said it, right? If you pick up the phone and call, he's never had someone say no to helping him. Back to when I think he was 13 or 14 when he called Packard and said, hey, I need some spare parts for school. Just call people, email them, cold outreach, see them at somebody at a conference. Hey, love what you're doing. I'd like to get some feedback from you on what we're doing. So relationships are without a doubt one of the... strongest ways to fill your gaps in knowledge, but also turning yourself into a sponge. I think the thing I love about what I'm doing, and it's the same thing that made me go from industry to industry, I love learning. So every day there's something new to learn. There's some other challenge to like, okay, I'm gonna have to learn something to solve this challenge. So that itch is consistently scratched for me. So turning yourself into a sponge, using relationships. The sponge thing is important because podcasts like this, the person does not have to be Elon Musk to give you some really valuable advice. And generally speaking, it might not even be like an Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg who's going to give you the nugget. It might be somebody who's just one or two steps ahead of you because it's really recent in their memory. Yeah. It's it's the, uh, you know, one chapter ahead principle. Like if I just did that chapter, I'm going to know exactly what I did better than if I did that 20 years ago as Elon Musk, right? 
and also the environment is now different. It, is what Elon Musk really going to be relevant for you now, 20, 25 years later in the different regulatory environment, different stage of the of the tech industry? So one chapter ahead, people are really great sources of nuggets. So that goes back to relationships, networking, put yourself out there. So for example, hypothetically, let's take a founder who's introvertish and you know it's hard for them to absorb multiple verticals they're really good in one thing but you know they can, they don't understand legal they don't understand tech hmm. would you say these are key skills someone should learn and try to adapt to or are there paths even if you're not good at relationship building if you're not good at being a sponge is the journey going to be the same harder what's your take on that i mean it's really hard for me to say what someone should be to be a successful anything because i think that there's so many people who break the mold is there even a mold for me i would say so if i if i just make it about me i think what makes being a ceo and founder possible in the ceo role is general being a generalist and i think being a generalist is really underrated in our society and i would recommend everybody to read the book range because it really highlights what is important, which is having a deep enough knowledge in multiple domains to see cross-pollination ability. Back to when I said I use things from the entertainment industry yeah. a lot. I use I use things from bartending that people, when I tell them, they're, they're taken aback. But in bartending, you have a an order of operations to get things done as quickly and efficiently as possible. That's true in everything. If you want to be quick and efficient, figure out what needs to be done when what you can delegate, what you can do, what you can put off to later to be as efficient as possible. So I think the CEO position, in my opinion, should be the general of the army or maybe the president, if you want to use a different analogy, but the general of the army is not the specialist. It's the person who sees the whole battlefield, who sees the relationship with allies, who sees like the weakness in the enemy, who understands the enemy. And that isn't just from studying war, it's from studying multiple different things. So for me, I don't just try to be a sponge in business podcasts. I just finished reading a book about Da Vinci and his his perspective on art was like understanding the art of science and the science of art. The way he flipped those two things is what kind of made him unique. If you want to learn the lessons, if you if you're looking for nuggets, they are everywhere. Sports, business, art, whatever you want to talk about. So I actually think a really good place to learn is criminal like enterprises because they are running such strong businesses in a black market. So right now I'm reading Tracers in the Dark about like kind of using Bitcoin to, to find criminal activity. I'm watching uh, the, the business of drugs on Netflix just to understand like what is the real market happening there and what are those people doing? How are they making decisions? How are they yeah. getting customer fit or product value? Exactly. What? The book Narconomics, I learned that there actually is a 1-800 line for like big dealers in Europe to call in Columbia or wherever it was. They could literally call and say there was a, a problem with their shipment. I had no idea. But if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. They're running a business. They're not just killing every single person. They're literally saying like, oh, we want to continue to do business. So call this number. Somebody will help you. 
Makes sense. 30% off discount on your next, you know, <laughs> import, I guess. I don't know how it works. I'm not a criminal, but. Black Friday deal. Yeah. Who knows? Exactly. Maybe. Uh, but, buy to get the third half off or something. I have no idea what they're doing, but they are doing those things. So I think you can learn just by trying to consume information. So if you're really strong at coding, this is going to be contrarian advice because I hear most people say, I actually think if you're really strong at coding, if you want to be the CEO of the company, now if you want to be the CTO, I still think you should know the business side 100%, really well. 100%. Maybe you have you, to understand impact. You can't just build. You have and to people, understand. Yeah. Right? You could be a great CTO, great tech person, but you're shit to work with and you can't retain talent. That's what you need to work on, right? So I'm not a believer in like work on your, keep honing your strengths and forget your weaknesses. I'm way more Eastern philosophy and Taoism says that if you over sharpen a blade, it becomes that uh, dull. So I think if you're really strong at coding, it's a skill I don't have, I haven't developed that I'm really in awe of when people can just know exactly how to engineer something that's beautiful. But if you can do that, you might actually want to really hone your business skills, your intuition for like understanding business problems. And maybe there's a different way to solve it that's easier than that. So yeah, that's what I would say. And and being okay with not being the CEO. Yeah. You can be a founder and not the CEO. If you're not the right person in that seat, you're just doing it out of ego, you may destroy something that could be beautiful otherwise. Uh, I used to work with a couple of folks at Indeed who used to say, I know I can do zero to one, maybe do one to 10 million, but they can't do 10 to 100. Sure. Because that's a very different skill set, very different mindset, and you need to know how to structure stuff differently. Exactly. And I read a really good Medium article once where this founder said, I'm a zero to one guy. And the second I go to 1 million in revenue, I hire someone out and I'll go on to the next idea. Yeah. Because I've done the one to 10, I suck at it. And so knowing that I think takes a lot of maturity, but hundred percent. Um, if you can identify that early on, you can just double down on what you're good at and yeah, have someone help you with that. Can you develop that mental awareness and strength to be able to know what your strengths are, see yourself clearly and make choices that are best for ultimately for you, I believe but especially for the company, right? Jason Robbins, the CEO of, of uh, DraftKings, there are three founders. He was not the original CEO. They changed. Yeah. And that could have caused real friction and maybe it did for a while, but I think it was, it's proven out to be the right decision for the company. What are three resources or books that you would recommend for people starting out or founders in their early journey right now that have really helped you so I know you recommended dot-com secrets to me. Yeah. Started reading it last night. I'm 40 pages in. Even though I'm not building a sales funnel, I think just knowing that, understanding that thought process and how you go about it may open up opportunities for me. Yeah. So do you have three recommendations for people listening? It could be books, resource, blogs, podcasts, whatever you. Yeah. I do think if you're founding a company with the idea of raising money, at some point, because not every company is going to, or nor should it raise money. It's it's case by case basis. But if you if you are going in that direction, you may want to memorize venture deals. Just it, it will give you a real advantage when you raise, I believe. So that's one book I would recommend. I'm actually struggling right now. I cannot remember 
the name of this podcast. So I may have to send it to you and you can put it in the yeah, show notes or yeah. something. But there is a really in-depth podcast that this gentleman does where he does, it might be called Founders, but he did like a three-part and he goes deep. He did a two or three-part on Steve Jobs. So what he does is he reads a book about someone. Got it. And then, and he may read, and every time he reads a new book about that person, he may revisit an episode, right? It's a really great podcast because again, the way Napoleon did something may actually relate to you. I'll give you an example. He did do an episode on Napoleon. It might be his first did episode. Did he do Disney as well? Yes. Okay, I know who you're talking You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Napoleon's whole thesis on battle- He was the producer in my first million. Oh, really? Yeah. That's all. If we're talking about- the Oh, you're talking- Yes, you're talking about how to take over the world. Yeah. Yeah, but I can't remember his name, but I've actually- He was Man's on Cody okay. Sanchez's- I actually was on a podcast. He was on an interview with them, and then he and I have emailed back and forth. I almost wrote for him in 2022. I sent him some submission stuff. Yeah. I can't remember his name right now. Um, ben something. It is Ben something. Yeah. The, it, the, the whole Napoleon thing, the biggest takeaway for me was that Napoleon's thesis was launch the battle before you're ready. And he went on to say, if I start before I'm ready, I know they're not ready and I believe I can figure it out before they can. He didn't have his battle plan figured out before he started the battle. So... And he may have had broad strokes understood about where he was, where the battle was, right? But that is a really interesting takeaway. Is it always usable? No, but no piece of advice is meant to be, this is what you do every Everything, time. Yeah. It's something you put in your toolkit. And when the moment seems right, you realize, oh, that's the moment to use this yeah. thing. So so how to take over the world. Venture deals. Venture deals. Resource-wise, I would say everyone should go to the YC Blogs. Blog. And, and not even, they also have a resource section where you can get. Like a safe note and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, stuff. and even if you just Google like YC safe 2023, I think the, the most recent update was either 2023 or 2022. I mean, they have it available, right? Okay. You can save yourself a ton of legal fees. They also direct people to use Clerky for formation. So that's really kind of in the weeds for like real technical needs. But I think YC provides this really helpful resource and not just them actually. So S3 Ventures in Austin, they actually, if you go to their website, they have things as well. I think they might even have like a cap table example that will auto calculate dilution over time. I think the biggest thing I would say is take a step back. What what do you want to do? Where do you want to be? And then start to really start to accumulate some resources. If you want to raise money, you start to look at like who would who would invest in me? Go to their websites and see if they do have a resource. They may have resources. And then you know how to kind of like, oh, okay, this is where we would position ourselves to build in that direction. Well, thank you for coming on, Justin. My pleasure. Thank you show. for letting oh. me be your inaugural uh, yeah. guest. One, one segment I want to try out, being my first guest, do you have a question for whoever I get on next, who I don't know who it is? But oh, yeah. I'll ask I them do. this question. When... Yeah. My, my question would be, Let's say you exit, you're an instant billionaire. What would you do next? Okay. That's what I'm curious about. It could either take motivation away or it could just give you more resources to fulfill the motivation that comes next. So I'd love to know what they would do next. Thanks for tuning into Funds and Founders. If you're a local Austin founder, a venture capitalist, or just someone who's building and in the middle of their journey, and would like to be featured on an upcoming episode, 
Submit your guest pitch to abhinavsinha.podcast at gmail.com. If you have a founder-specific event you'd like to promote on the podcast, you can also reach out to me. If you want to continue to get support through your founder journey, hit the follow button and I'll see you in the next episode.